Section 10 of Jean Christophe, Volume 1. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Joshua Seeger in Chicago. Jean Christophe, Volume 1 by Romain Roland. Translated by Gilbert Canaan. Dawn 3, Part 4 suddenly for no apparent reason melchior changed his opinion not only did he approve of his father having put together jean christophe's inspirations but to the boy's great surprise he spent several evenings in making two or three copies of his manuscript to every question put to him on the subject he replied impressively we shall see or he would rub his hands and laugh, smack the boy's head by way of a joke, or turn him up and blithely spank him. Jean-Christophe loathed these familiarities, but he saw that his father was pleased, and did not know why. Then there were mysterious confabulations between Melchior and his father, and one evening Jean-Christophe, to his astonishment, learned that he, Jean-Christophe, had dedicated to H. S. H. the Grand Duke Leopold the pleasures of childhood. Melchior had sounded the disposition of the prince, who had shown himself graciously inclined to accept the homage. Thereupon Melchior declared that without losing a moment they must, primo, draw up the official request to the prince, secondo, publish the work, tertio, organize a concert, to give it a hearing. There were further long conferences between Melchior and Jean-Michel. They argued heatedly for two or three evenings. It was forbidden to interrupt them. Melchior wrote, erased, erased, wrote. The old man talked loudly, as though he were reciting verses. Sometimes they squabbled or thumped on the table because they could not find a word. Then Jean-Christophe was called made to sit at the table with a pen in his hand, his father on his right, his grandfather on his left, and the old man began to dictate words which he did not understand because he found it difficult to write every word in his enormous letters, because Melchior was shouting in his ear, and because the old man declaimed with such emphasis that Jean Christophe, put out by the sound of the words, could not bother to listen to their meaning. The old man was no less in a state of emotion. He could not sit still, and he walked up and down the room, involuntarily illustrating the text of what he read with gestures, but he came every minute to look over what the boy had written, and Jean-Christophe, frightened by the two large faces looking over his shoulder, put out his tongue and held his pen clumsily. A mist floated before his eyes. He made too many strokes, or smudged what he had written, and Melchior roared, and Jean-Michel stormed. And he had to begin again, and then again, and when he thought that they had at last come to an end, a great blot fell on the immaculate page. Then they pulled his ears, and he burst into tears. But they forbade him to weep, because he was spoiling the paper, and they began to dictate, beginning all over again, and he thought it would go on like that to the end of his life. 
At last it was finished, and Jean-Michel leaned against the mantelpiece and read over their handiwork in a voice trembling with pleasure, while Melchior sat straddled across a chair and looked at the ceiling and wagged his chair and, as a connoisseur, rolled round his tongue the style of the following epistle. Most noble and sublime highness, most gracious lord, from my fourth year music has been the first occupation of my childish days. So soon as I allied myself to the noble muse, who roused my soul to pure harmony, I loved her, and, as it seemed to me, she returned my love. Now I am in my sixth year, and for some time my muse in hours of inspiration has whispered in my ears, Be bold, be bold, write down the harmonies of thy soul. Six years old, thought I, and how should I be bold? What would the learned in the art say of me? I hesitated, I trembled, but my muse insisted. I obeyed, I wrote. And now shall I, O oh most sublime highness, shall I have the temerity and audacity to place upon the steps of thy throne the first fruits of my youthful labours? Shall I make so bold as to hope that thou wilt let fall upon them the august approbation of thy paternal regard? Oh, yes, for science and the arts have ever found in thee their sage Messenus, their generous champion, and talent puts forth its flowers under the aegis of thy holy protection. In this profound and certain faith, I dare, then approach thee with these youthful efforts. Receive them as a pure offering of my childish veneration, and of thy goodness deign, O most sublime highness, to glance at them and at their young author, who bows at thy feet deeply and in humility, from the most submissive, faithful, and obedient servant of his most noble and most sublime highness, Jean-Christophe Kraft. Jean-Christophe heard nothing. He was very happy to have finished, and fearing that he would be made to begin again, he ran away to the fields. He had no idea of what he had written, and he cared not at all. But when the old man had finished his reading, he began again to taste the full flavor of it, and when the second reading came to an end, Melchior and he declared that it was a little masterpiece. That was also the opinion of the Grand Duke, to whom the letter was presented with a copy of the musical work. He was kind enough to send word that he found both quite charming. He granted permission for the concert, and ordered that the hall of his Academy of Music should be put at Melchior's disposal, and deigned to promise that he would have the young artist presented to himself on the day of the performance. Melchior set about organizing the concert as quickly as possible. He engaged the support of the Hofmusikverein, and as the success of his first ventures had blown out his sense of proportion, he undertook, at the same time, to publish a magnificent edition of The Pleasures of Childhood. He wanted to have printed on the cover of it a portrait of Jean-Christophe at the piano, with himself Melchior standing by his side, violin in hand. He had to abandon that, not on account of the cost. Melchior did not stop at any expense, but because there was not time enough. 
He fell back on an allegorical design representing a cradle, a trumpet, a drum, a wooden horse, grouped round a lyre which put forth rays like the sun. The title page bore, together with a long dedication in which the name of the prince stood out in enormous letters, a notice to the effect that Herr Jean-Christophe Kraft was six years old. He was, in fact, seven and a half. The printing of the design was very expensive. To meet the bill for it, Jean-Michel had to sell an old eighteenth-century chest, carved with faces, which he had never consented to sell in spite of the repeated offers of Wormser, the furniture dealer. But Melchior had no doubt but the subscriptions would cover the cost, and beyond that the expenses of printing the composition. One other question occupied his mind. How to dress Jean-Christophe on the day of the concert? There was a family council to decide the matter. Melchior would have liked the boy to appear in a short frock and bare legs, like a child of four. But Jean-Christophe was very large for his age, and everybody knew him. They could not hope to deceive anyone. Melchior had a great idea. He decided that the boy should wear a dress coat and white tie. In vain did Louisa protest that they would make her poor boy ridiculous. Melchior anticipated exactly the success and merriment that would be produced by such an unexpected appearance. It was decided on, and the tailor came and measured John Christophe for his little coat. He had also to have fine linen and patent leather pumps, and all that swallowed up their last penny. Jean Christophe was very uncomfortable in his new clothes. To make him used to them, they made him try on his various garments. For a whole month he hardly left the piano stool. They taught him to bow. He had never a moment of liberty. He raged against it but dared not rebel, for he thought that he was going to accomplish something startling. He was both proud and afraid of it. They pampered him. They were afraid he would catch cold. They swathed his neck in scarves. They warmed his boots in case they were wet. And at table he had the best of everything. At last the great day arrived. The barber came to preside over his toilet and curl Jean-Christophe's rebellious hair. He did not leave it until he had made it look like a sheepskin. All the family walked round Jean Christophe and declared that he was superb. Melchior, after looking him up and down, and turning him about and about, was seized with an idea, and went off to fetch a large flower which he put in his buttonhole. But when Louisa saw him she raised her hands and cried out distressfully that he looked like a monkey. That hurt him cruelly. He did not know whether to be ashamed or proud of his garb. Instinctively he felt humiliated, and he was more so at the concert. Humiliation was to be for him the outstanding emotion of that memorable day. The concert was about to begin. The hall was half empty. The Grand Duke had not arrived. One of those kindly and well-informed friends who always appear on these occasions came and told them that there was a council being held at the palace, and that the Grand Duke would not come. He had it on good authority. Melchior was in despair. He fidgeted, paced up and down, and looked repeatedly out of the window. Old Jean-Michel was also in torment, but he was concerned for his grandson. 
he bombarded him with instructions. Jean-Christophe was infected by the nervousness of his family. He was not in the least anxious about his compositions, but he was troubled by the thought of the bows that he had to make to the audience, and thinking of them brought him to agony. However, he had to begin. The audience was growing impatient. The orchestra of the Hofmusikverein began the Coriolan overture. The boy knew neither Coriolan nor Beethoven, for though he had often heard Beethoven's music, he had not known it. He never bothered about the names of the works he heard. He gave them names of his own invention, while he created little stories or pictures for them. He classified them usually in three categories, fire, water, and earth, with a thousand degrees between each. Mozart belonged almost always to water. He was a meadow by the side of a river, a transparent mist floating over the water, a spring shower or a rainbow. Beethoven was fire, now a furnace with gigantic flames and vast columns of smoke, now a burning forest, a heavy and terrible cloud, flashing lightning, now a wide sky full of quivering stars, one of which breaks free, swoops, and dies on a fine September night, setting the heart beating. Now the imperious ardor of that heroic soul burned him like fire. Everything else disappeared. What was it all to him? Melchior in despair, Jean-Michel agitated, all the busy world, the audience, the Grand Duke, little Jean-Christophe. What had he to do with all these? What lay between them and him? Was that he? He himself? He was given up to the furious will that carried him headlong, he followed it breathlessly, with tears in his eyes and his legs numb, thrilling from the palms of his hands to the soles of his feet. His blood drummed. Charge! And he trembled in every limb. And as he listened so intensely, hiding behind a curtain, his heart suddenly leaped violently. The orchestra had stopped short in the middle of a bar, and after a moment's silence it broke into a crashing of brass and cymbals with a military march, officially strident. The transition from one sort of music to another was so brutal, so unexpected, that Jean-Christophe ground his teeth and stamped his foot with rage and shook his fist at the wall. But Melchior rejoiced. The Grand Duke had come in, and the orchestra was saluting him with the national anthem, and in a trembling voice Jean-Michel gave his last instructions to his grandson. The overture began again, and this time was finished. It was now Jean-Christophe's turn. Melchior had arranged the program to show off at the same time the skill of both father and son. They were to play together a sonata of Mozart for violin and piano. For the sake of effect, he had decided that Jean-Christophe should enter alone. He was led to the entrance of the stage and showed the piano at the front, and for the last time it was explained what he had to do, and then he was pushed on from the wings. He was not much afraid, for he was used to the theatre, but when he found himself alone on the platform, with hundreds of eyes staring at him, he became suddenly so frightened that instinctively he moved backwards and turned towards the wings to go back again. He saw his father there gesticulating and with his eyes blazing. He had to go on. Besides, the audience had seen him. As he advanced, there arose a twittering of curiosity 
followed soon by laughter, which grew louder and louder. Melchior had not been wrong, and the boy's garb had all the effect anticipated. The audience rocked with laughter at the sight of the child with his long hair and gypsy complexion, timidly trotting across the platform in the evening dress of a man of the world. They got up to see him better. Soon the hilarity was general. There was nothing unkindly in it, but it would have made the most hardened musician lose his head. Jean-Christophe, terrified by the noise and the eyes watching, and the glasses turned upon him, had only one idea, to reach the piano as quickly as possible, for it seemed to him a refuge, an island in the midst of the sea. With head down, looking neither to right nor left, he ran quickly across the platform, and when he reached the middle of it, instead of bowing to the audience, as had been arranged, he turned his back on it and plunged straight for the piano. The chair was too high for him to sit down without his father's help, and in his distress, instead of waiting, he climbed up on to it on his knees. That increased the merriment of the audience, but now Jean-Christophe was safe. Sitting at his instrument, he was afraid of no one. Melchior came at last. He gained by the good humor of the audience, who welcomed him with warm applause. The sonata began. The boy played it with imperturbable certainty, with his lips pressed tight in concentration, his eyes fixed on the keys, his little legs hanging down from the chair. He became more at ease as the notes rolled out. He was among friends that he knew. A murmur of approbation reached him, and waves of pride and satisfaction surged through him as he thought that all these people were silent to listen to him and to admire him but hardly had he finished when fear overcame him again, and the applause which greeted him gave him more shame than pleasure. His shame increased when Melchior took him by the hand and advanced with him to the edge of the platform and made him bow to the public. He obeyed and bowed very low with a funny awkwardness, but he was humiliated and blushed for what he had done, as though it were a thing ridiculous and ugly. He had to sit at the piano again, and he played The Pleasures of Childhood. Then the audience was enraptured. After each piece they shouted enthusiastically. They wanted him to begin again, and he was proud of his success and at the same time almost hurt by such applause, which was also a command. At the end the whole audience rose to acclaim him. The Grand Duke led the applause. But as Jean-Christophe was now alone on the platform, he dared not budge from his seat. The applause redoubled. He bent his head lower and lower, blushing and hangdog in expression, and he looked steadily away from the audience. Melchior came. He took him in his arms and told him to blow kisses. He pointed out to him the Grand Duke's box. Jean-Christophe turned a deaf ear. Melchior took his arm and threatened him in a low voice. Then he did as he was told, passively, but he did not look at anybody. He did not raise his eyes, but went on, turning his head away, and he was unhappy. He was suffering, how he did not know. His vanity was suffering. He did not like the people who were there at all. It was no use their applauding. He could not forgive them for having laughed and for being amused by his humiliation. He could not forgive them for having seen him in such a ridiculous position, held in mid-air to blow kisses. 
He disliked them even for applauding, and when Melchior did at last put him down, he ran away to the wings. A lady threw a bunch of violets up at him as he went. It brushed his face. He was panic-stricken and ran as fast as he could, turning over a chair that was in his way. The faster he ran, the more they laughed, and the more they laughed, the faster he ran. At last he reached the exit, which was filled with people looking at him. He forced his way through, butting, and ran and hid himself at the back of the anteroom. His grandfather was in high feather and covered him with blessings. The musicians of the orchestra shouted with laughter and congratulated the boy, who refused to look at them or to shake hands with them. Melchior listened intently, gauging the applause, which had not yet ceased, and wanted to take Jean Christophe on to the stage again. But the boy refused angrily, clung to his grandfather's coat-tails, and kicked at everybody who came near him. At last he burst into tears, and they had to let him be. Just at this moment an officer came to say that the Grand Duke wished the artists to go to his box. How could the child be presented in such a state? Melchior swore angrily, and his wrath only had the effect of making Jean Christophe's tears flow faster. To stop them, his grandfather promised him a pound of chocolates, if he would not cry any more. And Jean Christophe, who was greedy, stopped dead, swallowed down his tears, and let them carry him off. But they had to swear at first, most solemnly, that they would not take him on to the platform again. In the anteroom of the Grand Ducal Box, he was presented to a gentleman in a dress coat, with a face like a pug-dog, bristling moustaches, and a short pointed beard, a little red-faced man, inclined to stoutness, who addressed him with bantering familiarity, and called him Mozart Redivivus. This was the Grand Duke. Then he was presented in turn to the Grand Duchess and her daughter, and their suite. But as he did not dare raise his eyes, the only thing he could remember of this brilliant company was a series of gowns and uniforms from the waist down to the feet. He sat on the lap of the young princess, and dared not move or breathe. She asked him questions, which Melchior answered in an obsequious voice with formal replies, respectful and servile. But she did not listen to Melchior, and went on teasing the child. He grew redder and redder, and thinking that everybody must have noticed it, he thought he must explain it away, and said with a long sigh, "'My face is red. I am hot.' That made the girl shout with laughter, but Jean Christophe did not mind it in her, as he had in his audience just before, for her laughter was pleasant, and she kissed him, and he did not dislike that. Then he saw his grandfather in the passage at the door of the box, beaming and bashful. The old man was fain to show himself, and also to say a few words, but he dared not, because no one had spoken to him. He was enjoying his grandson's glory at a distance. Jean-Christophe became tender, and felt an irresistible impulse to procure justice also for the old man, so that they should know his worth. His tongue was loosed, and he reached up to the ear of his new friend and whispered to her, "'I will tell you a secret.' She laughed and said, "'What?' "'You know,' he went on, "'you know the pretty trio in my minuetto, the minuetto I played? You know it?' He hummed it gently. "'Well, Grandfather wrote it, not I. All the other airs are mine, but that is the best. Grandfather wrote it. Grandfather did not want me to say anything.' You won't tell anybody? 
he pointed out the old man. That is my grandfather. I love him. He is very kind to me. At that the young princess laughed again, said that he was a darling, covered him with kisses, and, to the consternation of Jean-Christophe and his grandfather, told everybody. Everybody laughed then, and the Grand Duke congratulated the old man, who was covered with confusion, tried in vain to explain himself, and stammered like a guilty criminal. But Jean-Christophe said not another word to the girl, and in spite of her wheedling he remained dumb and stiff. He despised her for having broken her promise. His idea of princes suffered considerably from this disloyalty. He was so angry about it that he did not hear anything that was said, or that the prince had appointed him laughingly his pianist in ordinary, his Hofmusikus. He went out with his relatives, and found himself surrounded in the corridors of the theatre, and even in the street, with people congratulating him or kissing him. That displeased him greatly, for he did not like being kissed, and did not like people meddling with him without asking his permission. At last they reached home, and then hardly was the door closed that Melchior began to call him a little idiot, because he had said that the trio was not his own. As the boy was under the impression that he had done a fine thing which deserved praise and not blame, he rebelled and was impertinent. Melchior lost his temper and said that he would box his ears, although he had played his music well enough, because with his idiocy he had spoiled the whole effect of the concert. Jean-Christophe had a profound sense of justice. He went and sulked in a corner. He visited his contempt upon his father, the princess, and the whole world. He was hurt also because the neighbors came and congratulated his parents and laughed with them, as if it were they who had played, as if it were their affair. At this moment a servant of the court came with a beautiful gold watch from the Grand Duke and a box of lovely sweets from the young princess. Both presents gave great pleasure to Jean-Christophe, and he did not know which gave him the more. But he was in such a bad temper that he would not admit it to himself, and he went on sulking, scowling at the sweets, and wondering whether he could properly accept a gift from a person who had betrayed his confidence. As he was on the point of giving in, his father wanted to set him down at once at the table, and make him write at his dictation a letter of thanks. This was too much either from the nervous strain of the day or from instinctive shame at beginning the letter as Melchior wanted him to, with the words, The little servant and musician, Knecht und Musikus, of your highness. He burst into tears and was inconsolable. The servant waited and scoffed. Melchior had to write the letter. That did not make him exactly kindly disposed towards Jean-Christophe. As a crowning misfortune, the boy let his watch fall and broke it. A storm of reproaches broke upon him. Melchior shouted that he would have to go without dessert. Jean-Christophe said angrily that that was what he wanted. To punish him, Louisa said that she would begin by confiscating his sweets. Jean-Christophe was up in arms at that and said that the box was his and no one else's and that no one should take it away from him. He was smacked and in a fit of anger snatched the box from his mother's hands, hurled it on the floor, and stamped on it. He was whipped, taken to his room, undressed, and put to bed. In the evening he heard his parents dining with friends. A magnificent repast, prepared a week before in honor of the concert. He was like to die with wrath at such injustice. They laughed loudly and touched glasses. 
They had told the guests that the boy was tired, and no one bothered about him. Only after dinner, when the party was breaking up, he heard a slow, shuffling step come into his room, and old Jean-Michel bent over his bed and kissed him, and said, "'Dear little Jean-Christophe!' Then, as if he were ashamed, he went away without another word. He had slipped into his hand some sweetmeats which he had hidden in his pocket. That softened Jean-Christophe. But he was so tired with all the day's emotions that he had not the strength to think about what his grandfather had done. He had not even the strength to reach out to the good things the old man had given him. He was worn out and went to sleep almost at once. His sleep was light. He had acute nervous attacks, like electric shocks which shook his whole body. In his dreams he was haunted by wild music. He awoke in the night. The Beethoven overture that he had heard at the concert was roaring in his ears. It filled the room with its mighty beat. He sat up in his bed, rubbed his eyes and ears, and asked himself if he were asleep. No, he was not asleep. He recognized the sound. He recognized those roars of anger, those savage cries. He heard the throbbing of that passionate heart leaping in his bosom, that tumult of the blood. He felt on his face the frantic beating of the wind, lashing and destroying, then stopping suddenly, cut off by an Herculean will. That titanic soul entered his body, blew out his limbs and his soul, and seemed to give them colossal proportions. He strode over all the world. He was like a mountain, and storms raged within him, storms of wrath, storms of sorrow. Ah, what sorrow! But they were nothing. He felt so strong to suffer, still to suffer. Ah, how good it is to be strong! How good it is to suffer when a man is strong! He laughed. His laughter rang out in the silence of the night. His father woke up and cried, Who is there? His mother whispered, Shh, the boy is dreaming. All then were silent. Round them all was silence. The music died away, and nothing sounded but the regular breathing of the human creatures asleep in the room, comrades in misery, thrown together by fate in the same frail bark, bound onwards by a wild whirling force through the night. Jean-Christophe's letter to the Grand Duke Leopold is inspired by Beethoven's letter to the Prince-Elector of Bonn, written when he was eleven. End of section 10